came across a story this week about a man named Milton. Anybody know a lot of people named Milton in their lives? It's, nobody, oh, we got one. One Milton. Not two. Here we go. Milton. All right. Well, this Milton was born back in 1857. And he was born into a Mennonite family. And he worked on their farm. He helped run the farm because his father very frequently was gone. He would leave for extended periods of time, wouldn't say when he was leaving, wouldn't say how long he was going to be gone. And so Milton helped run the family farm. But as a result of the time that was required in running the farm, Milton never received an education beyond fourth grade. And then at age 14, he got an apprenticeship. He got a job working for a newspaper publisher. It was his job to help the machines continue to work and get the newspaper out uh, on time. If you don't know what a newspaper is, you can look it up on Google. It'll tell you about, a little bit about that info. Uh, or, or Wikipedia, hit that up. But uh, Milton worked in this newspaper uh, publisher's office. But his boss was a very hot-headed uh, hot man, a uh, very angry man. Um, and that kind of played into the fact that Milton did not like working in the newspaper office. There was one particular day that Milton's hat fell off into the newspaper machine uh, that he was running, the printing press that he was running at the time. And his boss went off yelling, calling him all kinds of names, and fired him on the spot. 14-year-old kid. So Milton walks out and goes home. And uh, his mama didn't want him to go back there and try to get his job back. And so his mama and his aunt got him a job working for a local candy maker. And so he goes in there and he's working for this candy maker. And he works for him turns out for four years, he loved making candy. Maybe it was the residuals he got from the candy. Maybe their policy was like Bluebell, eat all you can, sell the rest kind of a deal. But he loved working for the candy maker. And having worked there for four years, he figured that he knew enough to start his own candy business. So he strikes it out and he moves to Philadelphia. They lived in another uh, section of Pennsylvania. He moves to Philadelphia, starts his own candy company at age 18. And it very quickly failed. I mean, just, just bottom dropped out. Nobody was buying his candy. Even though he loved making candy, he just couldn't get people to buy what he was making. And so he moved from Philadelphia, found his way to Denver. He moved in several different places, finally settled in Denver, working for a candy maker there in Denver. But this candy maker was unique and began to teach Milton something very interesting he'd never thought about before. And that was incorporating fresh milk in the process of making caramels. And so he begins to work for this guy, and he does this, uh, and uh, he, he figures out uh, 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 kind of a, this is an art form in working this way. And he continues to, to work there. He works there for about three years, and he figures now he has learned enough to start another candy business using all this new info that he's got. So Milton moves again several more places. He ends up in New York City. He thought, there's a whole lot of people in New York City. Surely somebody there will like my candy that I'm making from fresh milk. And so he begins to develop this and work on it there. Um, but this business, like the other one, fails miserably. Nobody's buying his stuff. So Milton moves home, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He wants to start another company. Um, but instead of what he did before where he focused on making all kinds of candy, he said, I'm just going to narrow my focus and just make caramels. 
using the milk process. And so he began to sell that uh, with his third business he's now started, and that began to take off. People started buying his, his, his you know, uh, uh, milk caramel recipe, uh, his candy he was making, and they began to buy it. And he made a little bit of money, not a lot, uh, but he made enough that uh, uh, he had another idea pop in the back of his mind. You see, Milton began to lose interest in caramels uh, after a short while, uh, and he wanted to try something that was truly unique, at least as far as his experience was concerned. So he sold his caramel company, and he bought a chunk of land in uh, north of his home there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right in the dead center of a bunch of dairy farms, so he could have the freshest milk possible. And he began to work and, and uh, uh, innovate and create as much as possible, experiment with all kinds of different recipes, uh, using fresh milk uh, in what he was going to develop to be milk chocolate. And he began to work on it and work on it and work on it. He came up with this specific recipe. Uh, and then, using this unique recipe for milk chocolate, Milton began to sell something. Out of all these multiple failures he had had throughout his life, Milton Hershey produced the first milk chocolate Hershey bar in 1900. You see, a person's past doesn't force their future. A person's past doesn't determine what's coming down the road, as is demonstrated greatly in Scripture in the life of Simon Peter. We're going to be in several passages of Scripture. Uh, we're going to start, actually, in Matthew chapter 28. You see, Peter... Uh, had been chosen by Jesus to be a part of the ministry that Jesus was, was demonstrating. We saw uh, previously in this series how Peter's brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. And uh, Peter came to Jesus and Jesus began to teach him. And Peter grew, Peter you know, had his, his issues along the way. But here in Matthew 28, Peter is, is right next to Jesus when he gives the commission to his disciples. They're purpose in life, which we inherit as followers of Jesus now. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. So Jesus gives this instruction, and, and Peter receives this instruction. And so now he's operating under the uh, line of thinking from a direct word from Jesus, go and make disciples. And so that's constantly running through Peter's head. Whatever's coming down the road, he's thinking, go and make disciples. Jesus told us, Jesus commissioned us, Jesus gave us this word, go and make disciples. I mean, just imagine in your life, if tonight you're uh, getting ready for bed, and you're in the bathroom, and you're brushing your teeth, and then Jesus appears physically right next to you. And he gives you three sentences about what your life is supposed to be about from now until you die. Think that's going to leave a mark on you? Like, you're going to be quoting that forever. It's going to constantly be running through your head. And so Peter's remembering these words, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And from that point forward, Peter kind of steps up and takes a leading role in the process of the developing church. In Acts chapter 1, Peter has, uh, Jesus has gone back to heaven. And the disciples were told to go and wait in Jerusalem for the helper, for the Holy Spirit to come. They're not told how long to wait. They're not told what it's going to look like when the Holy Spirit arrives. They're just told to go back 
and wait. So they go back and they sit in the upper room, you know, where they had the, the Last Supper. They go back and they're waiting in this upper room. There's 120 of them. They're praying. They're singing, uh, fasting a little bit, eating at other times. And Peter stands up in the midst of this process because as he's been thinking, we've got to make disciples, he's also thinking Jesus' design in making the disciples was for there to be 12 of us who are supposed to be leading out in this process. Well, one of them killed himself, Judas, betrayed them and killed himself. And so now there's only 11. And so look at what Peter does in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So Peter stands up in front of the 120 of them, all the disciples that they have there. And Peter ends up saying, okay, guys, Jesus' intention was for 12 of us to lead. Now there's only 11. We, we, we have an empty slot. We need to fill that slot. But the requ- we need to, it can't just be anybody. The person you know, has to be following the Lord. And the, person, and the main qualification had to have been with us and Jesus from the beginning. And there were only two people in the room who fit that bill. And they end up settling on a guy named Matthias. And he becomes one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles. And Peter, having led out in that moment, shortly thereafter, the Holy Spirit comes. And everyone in the room feels the Holy Spirit, feels the power, feels the direction. And they walk out in the street, having received the Holy Spirit, with that line of thinking of Jesus' words to them, make disciples constantly running through their head. So having received the Holy Spirit, they go and do what Jesus told them to do. They run right out into the street and start telling people about Jesus. And people are there, and they're listening, and they're hearing all of this, and there's lots of confusion. So Peter stands up again. Chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, the other 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So Peter stands up again and leads, there's thousands of people here, leads them all in a presentation of the gospel. There's Peter standing, speaking. Peter has no, you know, resume qualifications that this should be his job. If you're looking at Peter's resume, you're thinking, he can't do that. Peter, Peter, no, no, not Peter. <laughs> he, he was a fisherman who, who didn't have a fisherman's job for several years, and now he is the leader of the whole shebang. But when it comes to qualifications for God's work, man's qualifications don't matter. Because the Lord looks at something deeper that we can't see. What God told Samuel back in the book of 1 Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. Man wouldn't have picked Peter to be the leader, but Jesus did. And Peter stands up and he shares the gospel. Jump down to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness. So Peter, again, is the one who's sharing the gospel. And continued to exhort them, encourage them, challenge them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So he shares the gospel and 3,000 people get saved in one go, just right there, right off the bat. They started the day with a church of 120, and now they have a church of 3,120. A massive jump, all because he's sharing the gospel there to them. And they continue to go, and they continue to meet. Uh, They're meeting in a unique way. Uh, They're meeting on a a small level in in some homes together, but on a large level, mostly every day, they would gather in Jerusalem in the largest facility they could find. 
the Jewish temple. There's this huge section of it called Solomon's Portico, Solomon's Porch, and, and these Christians, these thousands of Christians would gather there mostly every day, and they would have like a church service at, in the Jewish temple, which is led by the religious leaders who voted to kill Jesus. They're meeting right there in the temple. And so in the midst of that, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the leading disciples, are going to the temple one day to be a part of this moment. And they pass a guy who's begging for money. Peter and John turn to him, heal the man in the name of Jesus. The man stands up, and he walks in the temple with Peter and John. He's jumping, he's celebrating, he's worshiping God. Everybody in there is observing this because everybody had to walk past this man to get in. And so they're seeing this man worshiping God in the name of Jesus. And so it's creating quite a scene. And so all the people that are, that are gathered in this courtyard of the temple gather around and Peter stands up and he speaks again, shares the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So notice earlier when 3,000 people got saved, it says the number of the souls. So that's the, that's the total number of people from Acts 2 who got saved were 3,000. Here, it's just men who are counted in this spot. Not counting women, not counting children. So it's a number far exceeding that. At least 5,000 get saved. But what I want to point out is so I love uh, about this. Uh, in verse 1, it says, as they were speaking, they get arrested. So Peter and John are up there sharing the gospel. They're not done sharing the gospel when they get arrested. And the people still get saved. They didn't need the preachers to finish the invitation. They still got saved. A, a, a far larger uh, return uh, there with all these thousands and thousands of people. So this is who Peter is, Right? Here's Jesus' word, go and make disciples, stands up, leads the disciples to, to fill a role with Matthias, stands up and shares the gospel, 3,000 people get saved, stands up, shares the gospel, way over 5,000 people get saved. He's in jail for the, for the gospel of Christ. He's all about it. He spoke powerfully in the name of Jesus. But for Peter, being used powerfully by God, that was not always the case with him, right? There were times when Peter acted out of pride, out of fear, out of many other things. There's actually a time in Mark chapter 8 where, where Jesus has just told his disciples, guys, I, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to have to die for the sins of the world, but he, Jesus says, but don't worry because I'm going to raise from the dead. And so after he, Jesus says this to his disciples, Peter grabs Jesus, pulls him off to the side, and it says in Mark 8, he rebukes Jesus. How would you like that written about you for all eternity, that you took a moment and you rebuked Jesus to his face because he said he's going to raise from the dead? He rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus calls him Satan. That's Peter. Not only that, he openly denied any association with Jesus. And we're going to look at that scripture in Mark chapter 14 openly denied any association 
with Jesus. Uh, Mark 14, down in verse 66. So at this point, Jesus, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. He's been arrested. When Jesus was arrested, all his disciples ran for the hills, scared out of their minds that they're going to get arrested too. They saw Judas betray them, Judas, one of their own. They saw one of their own. They had in their inner circle who knew, you know, the secrets, who knew what was being said. Judas betrayed them. And they ran and hid. After they'd run and, and, and hid for a while, Peter and John linked back up. And they follow Jesus from a distance, in secret, undercover. Maybe they're wearing a cloak with a hood, I don't know. But they're, they're trying to disguise that they're there. And they follow at a distance. Jesus gets taken to the high priest's house for them to have a trial. And I've mentioned before, uh, around Easter, there's all kinds of things that this was illegal. To have a, a trial in the high priest's house, at night, behind closed doors, it was all done incorrectly, out of order, uh, wrong. But they didn't care about that. They just cared about getting what they wanted. And so they bring Jesus in there, and Peter and John are following from a distance, and they kind of hang out outside the high priest's house, like in the courtyard, where there's a bunch of other people hanging out, high priest servants, and just some random stra- you know, uh, hangers-on, stragglers. Uh, but Peter and John are there because they kind of want to hear what's going on. They don't want anybody to recognize them because, again, they're still scared. After this situation, we learn after uh, Peter runs with the other disciples and they lock themselves in a room, John stays around, but Peter runs away scared later. So that's where we get, that's where we are in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And so he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So this girl says, I saw you with Jesus. I mean, they'd been in town now for a week. I mean, it's Sunday, it's uh, uh, Thursday evening, so almost a week. She said, I've seen you around town hanging out with Jesus. And Peter says, absolutely not. I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't understand, you're wrong. And so Peter kind of removes himself from that little circle, gathered around that little fire, warming themselves, and he, he moves out to the gateway. Like, like, you got the courtyard and the gateway, the walls that surround the high priest's house, and he moves out as far as he can get and still kind of be within ear, earshot. And so he's uh, out there. Look what happens next, verse 69. And the servant girl, so that same servant girl, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, it's just an aside. I've heard preachers use this verse as a justification for cussing. Because Peter did. A couple of problems with that. First, it's not put in a good light. There's no justification here for that. And these words don't mean like cursing profanity today Peter invokes a curse on himself in the same vein of may I be cursed by God if I'm telling a lie is what he's talking about and he's not swearing again as in profanity he's swearing as I promise I do not know the man of whom you speak that's what he's talking about here in this verse 
Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Peter, Peter, rebuked by Jesus, called Satan by Jesus, denies Jesus three times openly. It's in the Gospels, all the Gospels. Peter denies Jesus. When he's tempted and tested, Peter fell. He failed. So then what changed between this moment of failing and then leading thousands and thousands of people to Christ, being the leader, being the guy? Well, there's a couple things. First, I want you to look at that verse 72 there, the very last sentence. It says, he broke down and wept. He wept. That, that's an indication of a couple things. It's an indication of remorse, and it's an indication of repentance. He realizes what he did was wrong. He realizes what he did was wrong, was sinful. And by weeping in this way, the way it's phrased, it's, I'm never going to do this again. He's repenting of this moment. But that's not the only thing that happens here. Flip over to John chapter 21. Some time has passed. Jesus has risen from the dead. And the disciples have seen him. And Peter takes some of the disciple buddies and they go out fishing. Jesus shows up. They come in. They eat with Jesus. And then Jesus has a little private conversation with Peter. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus, notice how many times did Jesus ask, do you love me? Three times. And then Jesus gave Peter three instructions Right? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Three instructions, which mirrors the three denials Peter had. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter gets three opportunities to say that he loves Jesus, gets three instructions from Jesus. This really is sort of a recommissioning of Peter as an apostle. Peter is restored by Jesus. He, he, Peter has had a moment of remorse, had a moment of, of repentance, and then Jesus comes along and, and, and Jesus uh, re- restores him. Repentance and restoration are two sides of, of the same coin for the believer. We repent, Jesus restores. Only you can repent and only Jesus can restore. It's in my notes, but I'm going to go there. Um, Sometimes I've heard people say when somebody stumbles and falls and sins, I've heard 
uh, people say that that person did not spend enough time being restored, did not spend enough time out there getting better. Maybe they didn't, I don't know. But the difficulty is Peter denied Jesus. I mean, straight publicly denied that he knew Jesus whatsoever. Days later, he's restored. We cannot be the judge of whether or not somebody's heart is restored. We can't judge that. You can't, I can't. I don't know somebody's heart. My heart is sinful. Scripture says the heart of man is deceitful above all else. All else. So I can't judge whether or not somebody else is restored. Jesus can. Jesus can determine whether somebody else is restored or not. Jesus can determine whether somebody else's repentance is genuine or not. Not me. I'm not the judge of that. Jesus is. So we've got to be extremely careful when somebody stumbles and falls. Extremely careful when we label them not useful until a time of which we deem they've earned it back. See, the problem with that is we, in that moment, are trying to issue grace. Grace that only Jesus can issue. I'm not the grace issuer. You're not the grace issuer. Jesus is. And so we can't supplant Jesus. We can't do Jesus' job. we got to let him be the restorer. Our job, according to Scripture, is to come alongside the one who stumbled and fell and help them. Not judge them, not beat them when they're down, not slap them around, is to help them, offer them more grace, offer them more love, offer them more strength. Because who knows if tomorrow you're not the one stumbling and they're the ones to help you get back up. We gotta help each other. Not judge each other, not slap each other. Because, here it is. I was talking to Jared about this this morning. What's the one thing Jesus prayed for the church? John 17. Unity, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. That type of unity. Be the same kind of unity, all of us together, as Jesus and God. Imagine, do you feel like you're that unified with anybody? But that's what the Son of God prayed for you and for me. We would be so unified in his purpose, in his call, in what he has for us to accomplish, like our church here in DeQueen, that we'd be unified seeking his purpose and his goal. But you know, Satan knows that's what Jesus prayed. So Satan comes and he tries to mess that up in all kinds of ways. It's what Solomon said in, the song of, in his Song of Solomon. They're little foxes that sneak in the garden to mess everything up. He's, he's cunning, the enemy. He's very good at it. Because he's done it for thousands of years. But Jesus wants singular purpose in what we're called to do. So here's Peter, who's failed miserably. I mean, imagine. Okay, let's, let's, let's play what if. All right, I know we, we can go down the what if rabbit hole and it can mess us all up. But let's say what if. Things go haywire, and it becomes illegal 
to meet as a church unless we say what the government says to say. That happens in the world. It's in China right now. You can't meet publicly as a church unless you preach uh, from a government-approved Bible. It has a government stamp on it. They've taken out parts and they've reworded other parts. Imagine that happens. And then imagine the the Queen Bee, if you don't know, that's our local newspaper, comes and does an interview. And I give an interview to the Queen Bee. Guy rides in on his motorcycle. If you, he, he's, he's a great guy. He, he's funny. Um, and he interviews me. And I deny Jesus in that interview three times. How quick would you want me back up here preaching? Church people. Woo! Run out of town on a rail. You kidding me? We're so fast. Mm. But what does Jesus do with Peter? That guy who denied Jesus, who denied Jesus in front of John, one of the other disciples. What does Jesus do? He puts the denier in charge of everything. He restores Peter a few days after he's denied Jesus. Because Jesus knows Peter's heart. Peter repented, and Jesus put Peter in charge of the thing. Because Jesus knew something about Peter. What this moment of failure was going to produce in him. You see, Simon's failure, Simon Peter's failure, produced a strong faith. His failure produced a strong faith because of repentance, because of restoration. Jesus used Peter's past to propel him beyond personal effort. Peter couldn't restore himself. Peter didn't have the ability within himself to go out there and do what Jesus needed him to do in the book of Acts. Peter couldn't do it. Jesus could do it through Peter. So Jesus used Peter's past to propel him out there. Jesus can produce faith from failure. He can produce faith from failure every single time. You see, Satan wants you to think, I've got to wait here. Satan wants you to think that your past is a weight that you're tied to, that is holding you back. That you can try to get away from it But it limits how far you can go. You feel like, this is your past. I can only go here. I can only do this. I can't get very far because my past, I'm tied to it. I can only get so far. I can only do so much. I can only get to certain distances because my past is right there. Maybe if I produce enough effort, I can try to move the thing. But then I'm not moving at the pace that Jesus really wants me to move at. I'm just kind of struggling to get this thing going here because I'm tied to my past. That's the way Satan wants you to think about it. But that's not reality. That's not reality because what Jesus does is he takes your past and he converts it into rocket fuel to propel you, to launch you out into the future he designed for you. He takes Peter, labeled the denier, and makes him a man of great faith. Because of the failure, do you think for a second 
Peter would have been able to do if he had not been restored like the way Jesus restored him in John chapter 21. And he wouldn't have been restored the way he was restored in John 21 if he didn't first stumble and fall. God didn't intend him to stumble and fall. God didn't want him to stumble and fall, but God knew he was going to. So Jesus was right there with that restoration, bringing him to where he needed to be. But then the question arises, what if the weight that you feel tied to is not a result of some sin that you have committed? It's not a result of some failure on your part. What if the weight you feel tied to is a result of this broken world? It's a health thing. Health thing with your family. It's a money thing. It's, what if it's, it, it's a result of somebody else? What they did to you feels like a weight. What they said about you feels like a weight. The gossip and the rumors, it feels like, like a weight that you can't get very far with. What do we do with that in that moment? Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Something that was bearing down, that was not his fault by any stretch of the imagination. Famous passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul's got this issue. We don't know what it is. There's lots of speculation about what it could be. But we know from the passage, it's not something that's a result of Paul's sin, of a failure that Paul has had. It's from an outside source, has brought this thing in. He calls it a messenger of Satan to harass that word harass in the original language means to beat with fists. Like Paul, if Paul said, it's, it's like I feel like I'm just constantly being beat up. Like I, I'm battle weary. I'm tired because of this thing. And it's weighing down on me. It's this, this incredible weight. And, 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 and the way Paul says it is it's not my fault that I've got it. But it's there. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. And that phrase, I've preached on that before, that means three seasons of time. Three, I mean, not just you know, one-off prayers. He didn't pray just three individual prayers. He prayed for a whole season of his life, three different times, months and months possibly, years even, that God would, would remove this weight, this problem that's not his fault, that he's got because of something else, because of somebody else, because of some outside source. He's got this weight, and, and, and he's begging God to get rid of it. Begging God to pull it off of him. And God's answer in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough for you. Understand this phrasing from God. God is telling Paul, removing that weight from your life is not enough for your faith. That, that, that won't do what needs to be done to your faith. Removing it is not enough. But what is enough is my grace. What is enough is my presence in your life. With that weakness that you have, with that issue you've got, my power is more prevalent. My power is more present because you have that weakness. 
I can do something with you that I could not do otherwise. So look at what Paul says. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. May rest on me. That literally means may, may, may take up residence in my life. Not just come and pass, but that the power of God will come on me and, and reside there. As long as I've got this issue, this weight, this weakness, as long as I've got it, I've got the power of God in a way that wouldn't be there otherwise. For, okay, in verse 10. This one, I want to prepare you for this, okay? Because I was not prepared when I did some research on this verse. I was not prepared for what Paul actually says here in this verse. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What I wasn't prepared for was that word content. Because in the original language, that word means to enjoy or to prefer. It's not like Paul's saying, I, I, I'm settling with this weakness. I, I'm content with it just being present. He's saying, I prefer when in my life I have weaknesses. I prefer when I'm being insulted. I prefer when I have more hardships. I prefer more persecutions. I prefer more calamities. Because he says, when I'm weak and those things are present, then I'm strong because the power of God is there. I prefer it. I enjoy it when this is happening because I feel God's presence in a more powerful and tangible way. He says, so I would not remove that weight that I'm feeling in any capacity because it does propel me in a way with my faith that I would not have otherwise. I prefer it. I don't know if y'all, I was not ready for that. Like I had to sit down for a minute. I, I prefer weaknesses and insults. I prefer hardships and I prefer when when I prefer when stuff is just all kinds of messed up. Anybody pray like that? God, give me a messed up life. God, I pray that this person and this person and this person would say all kinds of lies and bad stuff about me. God, I pray that I'd have health problems. God, I pray that my bank account would be zero. God, I pray it. In Jesus' name, I claim it. Anybody prayed that this week? We need to have a counseling session if you did. But Paul's saying, he said, I prefer that this is happening so that God's power is more present. He said, because if I didn't have the weakness, if I didn't have the weight, his, then I'm saying his grace is not enough for me. That what is enough for me is a perfect life. That's what's enough, Jesus. Paul's saying, no, ooh, I would rather have his presence than perfection every day of the week. I would rather experience what he intends me to experience, to fulfill what he intends me to fulfill, to, to share the gospel with as many people as he intends me to share the gospel with. And if I have to endure this struggle, if I have to endure this, what I perceive to be a weight in order for my faith to be propelled, and he, Paul says, I prefer it, I enjoy it for the sake of Christ. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Not under my own ability, but under his. Paul had come to a place of complete trust in his relationship with Jesus. So he prefers moments of personal weakness because the amount of, of the Lord's power he experiences from faith. So receiving that weakness that he had, that, 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 that thorn in the flesh, receiving that in his past, no way limits God's power in him. Which he wrote in 
Romans 8, 28. A verse most of you will recognize in some capacity or another. We know that for those who love God, believers, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. That doesn't mean all things will be good. That doesn't mean all things will be great. That doesn't mean your life will be good and perfect and awesome. It means that God will weave all of those things that are going on, all of those weights, all of those weaknesses, all of those problems. God will bring it together, the things that maybe you did in your past, maybe the things that just happened to you. God will bring it together for his good and his purpose and do something phenomenal with it out of a a growing faith. And so here's the truth about your past with whatever God wants to do with you. Whether your past, the thing that continually rolls around in the back of your mind, whether your past is a direct result of something you did, that weight, or the weight is something somebody else did to you, or a combination, your past doesn't hinder what God can do with your future. Your past doesn't hinder what God can do with your future. I mean, look at Scripture. Paul, Peter, a failure, a denier. Paul, a murderer. Quite possibly the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. King David, adulterer, murderer. And it's after that that King David is called a man after God's own heart. Not before, after. In the book of Acts, it said that David fulfilled the will of God in his generation. Because he sinned? No. Because of Psalm 51, because he repented. Because he turned back to God. Your past doesn't hinder what God can do with your future. If God was gonna give you no future, he would take you now, he'd be done. But the fact that you're still here means he's still got something for you to do. And so your past doesn't stop what he's going to do with you. People can think all day long your past is going to mess you up. Your past keeps you from doing this, that, and the other thing. But with God, your past doesn't hinder what he can do with your future. So the question, do you have anything in your past that you feel is a weight? Do you have anything in your past you feel is a weight that you need to turn over to God to convert from a weight into rocket-fueled faith? What is that thing that is a burden on your heart that is a heavy weight that you're constantly carrying around that nobody knows but you're, 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 walking, you're, you're walking wounded and you can't get out from under that weight. And Satan keeps poking and he keeps prodding and he keeps keeping you weak. That's when we need to turn to 2 Corinthians. And Jesus is, in God's words, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe the place you've come to today in needing Jesus is you need to be saved. You've been trying to go it alone for far too long. Trying to do it 
this life by yourself without the help of Jesus. And you need to come to know him. Believe that Jesus is God's son. That he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And if you believe that, scripture tells us then, at that moment, you receive eternal life. And you're a Christian. And there's nothing you can do from this point until the end of time to undo that salvation. You're his forever. You can't be removed from his hand. So will you believe today? Believe in Jesus. So those are the two things. Will you believe in Jesus? And what is it you need to release into his hands to propel your faith on into the future?